episode four of Nature's Pulse, I want to start by highlighting a concerning research paper that came out about the Amazon rainforest. So here's the, um, it's a Guardian article that summarizes the research paper. It's uh, short and sweet, so let me just read what it says. So the headline is, Amazon near tipping point of switching from rainforest to savanna. The climate crisis and logging is leading to shift from canopy rainforest to open grassland. Um, it says, so much of the Amazon can be on the verge of losing its distinct nature and switching from a closed canopy rainforest to an open savanna with far fewer trees as, as a result of the climate crisis. Rainforests are highly sensitive to changes in, in rainfall and moisture levels, and fires and prolonged droughts can result in area losing trees and shifting to a savanna-like mix of woods and grasslands. In the Amazon, changes are known to be possible but thought to be many decades away. But new research shows that the tipping point could be much closer than previously thought. As much as 40% of the existing Amazon rainforest is now at a point where it could exist as a savanna instead of a rainforest. Any shift from a rainforest to savanna would still take decades to take full effect, but once underway, the process is hard to reverse. Rainforests support a vastly greater range of species than savanna and play a much greater role in absorbing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Parts of the Amazon receiving much less rain than they used to because of the changing climate. Rainfall, about 40% of the forest, is now at a level where the rainforest can be expected to exist as a savanna. So this is based on computer models and data analysis. Um, and that's where things are not 100% because with computer models, I mean, you look at climate change models and they're always wrong. So I take that with a grain of salt, but again and again, uh, the rainforest, the Amazon rainforest is just taking blow after blow after blow uh, through deforestation specifically, but then you just add the layer of climate change um, issues with their indigenous population <clears throat> being uh, being threatened, um, logging operations, illegal logging operations, um, the drug war, all types of um, issues are converging in our most, uh, one of the most biodiverse and beautiful uh, and pro productive ecosystems in the world. So it's just a tragedy that almost feels inevitable to happen, uh, the collapse of the Amazon rainforest, um, unless we do something about it urgently, but it certainly seems like uh, the Amazon rainforest is not going to be the way that uh, it has been for, for centuries. So let's pray things get better in the Amazon. Uh, that's always one of the top uh, conservation priorities that we have on Earth. Uh, so the next piece here shows the cascading impact that COVID-19 is having. Um, so essentially, this article talks about uh, the impacts of African employment and how that has led to poaching. So the summary is that COVID caused over 30 million Africans that benefited directly from the tourism industry to lose their livelihood overnight. And a quote from uh, one of the park rangers in Kenya says, what this means is that the bad guys are wanting to recruit these people into poaching. We've seen a surge in poaching, not because they're bad people, but, the, but because they have lost their livelihood. And uh, this is just shows how 
the economy and ecology or conservation is so intertwined. Uh, when the environment goes bad, the economy often gets thrown with it. Uh, you know, bad air, bad water, any of that can really disrupt the stability of, uh, of an economy. But it goes the opposite way too, now that the economy has been disrupted so significantly by COVID-19 it's having many downstream impacts on conservation as people get increasingly desperate. So we got to figure this COVID-19 situation out for many, many reasons. Uh, our, our biodiversity is just one more of those reasons. So last week we talked about how mining, Canadian mining companies in the Philippines were uh, doing practices that led to violence and death of locals and uh, environmentalists. We outlined how the Philippines and Brazil are the two top most dangerous places for environmental, uh, environmental advocates and environmental professionals. And tragically, this week uh, proved that again. So in the Philippines, uh, forester Danilo Pascasio was shot along with two other police officers while making arrest in a legal logging operation. So Danilo is now fighting for his life uh, and uh, healthcare is not free in the Philippines. So they are currently accepting donations for his support. Um, I would recommend everyone uh, just, you can Google his name uh, right here if, you, if you're watching it on YouTube. If not, if you're listening to the podcast, I'll just spell out his name now. So Danilo, D-A-N-I-L-O space Pascasio, P-A-S-C-A-S-I-O. Um, and you'll find his story and uh, see how tragic of a, an event this was. And he has a uh, fundraiser going on. So you can donate directly to his bank account. Uh, so there's some information uh, when, if you Google his name, uh, they have it set up so you can transfer directly into his bank to, uh, to help with support him and his family. So I would definitely encourage you to, to do that. It's a very concerning situation, what's happening in the Philippines, especially because it's one of the most beautiful and diverse uh, ecosystems on the planet. So we need to support them wherever we possibly can, and that's what I'm trying to do by bringing light to this issue. So if anyone is there in the Philippines and feels like I can help them out with anything, please just let me know. Uh, if not, we're always uh, watching the news and uh, keeping an eye on, on, on things and appreciate all of your work to protect our biodiversity. So I have another show called Environmental Professionals where I interview people in the, in in the industry uh, at all stages of their career. And I just wanted to plug uh, that this Wednesday I just released episode 14 of Environmental Professionals with Louise Ocean Dillon. Uh, so she's from France and she's studying marine biology, biology at the University of Plymouth. Uh, and I had a great conversation with her and learned a lot. Uh, it's really interesting to hear someone at that point in their career where um, I have a lot of empathy with it because we've all, um, us who are well into our career have all been at that stage where you just don't know which route um, you're going to take because you're kind of really in the middle of your studies still. So you're kind of feeling anxious about what's going to come after school. So I have a lot of empathy for her situation, but 
she really inspired me because she uh, demonstrated a, a real love for the ocean and for what she's doing. So I'm confident she's going to be go, um, going on to do some very exciting things. So I would encourage everyone to go uh, and check that that uh, that episode out. And there was another post that I did because uh, I just found myself thinking about how much at the start of the year I began the Environmental Professionals show. And right here, uh, I had the luxury of interviewing for my first episode ever, G. Uh, Thomas Headland. So he is a creative writer who's done some, he's written a lot of books about environmental fiction, which is a very niche subject, but very cool. And uh, to give someone the first interview, I mean, he knew that uh, I was kind of using him as a guinea pig. Of course, I really did want to talk to him, but I didn't really know what I was doing so much. And the show clearly hadn't had, um, hasn't hadn't been picking up that much uh, just because it was the very first episode. But he gave me a chance and really got me started. So I just wanted to give him a shout out uh, this week uh, because it's almost been a year since I first started the Environmental Professional Show. Um, so I would encourage you to also, if you're going to check out episode 14, to check out episode number one with G. Thomas Headland because he's such a sincere and cool person that has a really uh, an amazing story. So we also had uh, the best kind of news come out, which is rewilding news. Uh, Tasmanian devils have returned to the mainland of Australia for the first time in 3,000 years. So that is very cool to think of. Uh, pretty much their story is that, and this is a lot is theorized, that uh, because Tasmanian devils are carnivores, meaning they only eat meat, uh, they suspect that when humans colonized Australia uh, 3,000 years ago, that humans outcompeted the Tasmanian devil for prey. Um, as you know, humans are omnivores, so there's a there's a competition there, and they have a feeling that humans won that competition. So as uh, prey populations declined, as humans became more established, uh, the Tasmanian devil population declined and eventually was wiped out on mainland Australia, only being left in Tasmania, hence the name the Tasmanian devil. So they've also had a hard run in Tasmania as well. Uh, they were hit with a disease, uh, something about their nose, which uh, only left them to 25,000 being uh, existing in the wild. So there's more to this article than just a complete uh, good news story, though. Um, things are more complicated than we like oftentimes. So they're not just actually being released in the wild. Uh, they're being released into a, a fenced-off area. And this makes me feel good, to be honest, because there's uh, way too many stories, specifically in Australia, of uh, biological control, usually. So biological control is when there is a pest or disease issue and another species is introduced from somewhere else to try to control that disease or pest and oftentimes it cascades into other uh, problems that weren't foreseen. And this happens all the time still and uh, it's always very frustrating because you would think that there would be more caution because uh, it just adds another blow to 
oftentimes already degraded ecosystems. So one recent uh, case that has made me frustrated is in North America. We had the emerald ash borer hit uh, very hard, almost completely wiping out ash trees in uh, the northern and eastern part of North America uh, to the point where there is there there's mass carn uh, carnage of ash trees that I, there's none left and actually I noticed this this year as I was driving around and uh, I, I said to my parents like that fall seems to be coming later than I normally had seen it not the weather but the the color changes and I it finally hit me that the very first species to turn color uh, in my area of Ontario, Canada, was always ash trees. And in the last couple of years, they've disappeared. And it feels like fall has been delayed because of that, uh, that transition species to really start showing like, hey, it's fall. So that's a very tragic story. But um, there's a, also been a sense of desperation. Uh, with it because it's been such a high profile loss and because they were used with city trees uh, the, the cities have uh, and municipalities have put a lot of money into these species uh, acting as infrastructure and they've been losing them on mass which costs a lot of money to take them down replant them showing the canopy loss losses uh, and as part of that desperation they have reintroduced or they've introduced a wasp to try to control the emerald ash borer which is a insect boring insect from uh, Asia and that really concerns me because uh, and that we don't know the impacts yet but they've just started releasing them and I'm not convinced they did a full analysis on what the impact of that is going to be and it honestly seems too little too late because the ash trees are gone at this point uh, so you know this kind of these kind of things happen all the time without a full analysis so at least in this case with the Tasmanian devil, they're doing a controlled introduction into a caged off area. The issue with it, um, and we can read to the comments, this was brought to my attention because I didn't know the nuances of it, uh, is so Didi makes a great comment about note that the introduction is to a large fenced off enclosure, not the true wild. And then I said this about the biological control, but then she brings up the point of it's a predator-free enclosure in a very different ecological system to the wild, which is very too true. She has a great point there. It's not really a great test or indicator because it's not the true ecosystem. So, you know, that's something uh, to be concerned, but it is also, it does test some elements of how the ecosystem is going to react. So I don't think it's completely meritless. Uh, and it could be an exciting reintroduction. But then again, 3,000 years is a long time for a species to be gone uh, from its ecosystem. And ecosystems change. So we'll see what happens with the Tasmanian devil. It look, It's looking optimistic right now. Uh, they even had, I think, is his name Chris Hemsworth, the actor? to do a big media um, splash to show this reintroduction project. So hoping the best for the Tasmanian devil uh, and for this reintroduction and conservation project. So we go from a reintroduction, a rewilding project to the opposite spectrum, which is a potential extinction. 
and I haven't been able to dig more into this uh, this uh, topic because I haven't been able to find more information about it. It's just a very short article, uh, maybe a couple paragraphs that I was able to just summarize here. It's about uh, tortoises in Libya. And it says the Libyan Wildlife Trust has warned that the Libyan tortoise species are on their way to extinction due to, to ongoing smuggling of these creatures outside the country. The Libyan Wildlife, unex, uh, the wildlife explained in a statement on Facebook that tortoises are being smuggled to Egypt to be sold to tour, tourists as well as local people, who most of them live in apartments, which is not a suitable place to raise such creatures as they hardly see the sun. The whole pet industry uh, really makes me cringe, and I think, uh, oh, it's just, yeah, it's a, a huge driving factor for just so many, um, you know, loss of loss of uh, populations and biodiversity, but just mistreatment and the entire thought of us um, having to own animals to to me is just, uh, it's not right. I like seeing species that are free. And I think we should invest in the freedom of all species. But uh, yeah, if you know where to get more information about this, I'd, I'd like to know specifically uh, how bad their populations are being threatened and what their uh, what work is being done about it, if anything, because uh, certainly Libya is in turmoil uh, politically and uh, these types of conservation projects could be quite urgent. So. It doesn't say anything is being done about it, but, uh, and there was also a similar article, just a couple paragraphs about their Acadia, Acadia trees, uh, as there's been some, the political turmoil, people have been cutting more and more wood and the Acadia trees have also been, uh, identified at, as at, at risk of extinction in the Southern part of Lib of Libya. So we're going to try to come back and monitor the situation there in Libya. That's it for this episode. I know it was a shorter one, but uh, we'll have a lot more next week. Uh, I'll just leave with what's on my mind this week. Uh, so unfortunately, the person who is really has been a mentor of mine gave me my very first co-op internship uh, back in grade 11 at a conservation authority. She had been uh, with her employer for 36 years, an amazing, uh, and she's just an amazing contributor to the environmental field. And there's been lots of cuts with uh, the, her organization, which is a publicly funded organization. And uh, there was just some uh, political turmoil and she actually got fired uh, just a year away from retirement. So she's not in a horrible position, but just left in a horrible um, manner, disrespect, disrespected manner. And um, I can't wait to get her on the Environmental Professionals podcast and go through all her contributions and give her some closure. But uh, it's just made me been thinking is that you can't ever leave yourself vulnerable to uh, an employer, an employer, because you never know, know what's going to happen. So she didn't do that. You know, she had a very well uh, rounded network. So I know that if she wanted to continue working, she definitely could have. But it just made me think, you know, it's so easy to find a great employer and put your head down and just work and be loyal. But you always need to keep in the back of your head uh, to diversify your network and uh, keep an open mind and horizon and, and keep the horizon open because 
you know, just things can change on the in the snap of your fingers. So always build in resiliency and uh, diversity into your uh, to your career options uh, in order to avoid anything you know that can come up. So that's my advice and what's been on my mind all week because you know it's just unfortunate when bad things happen to great people. So uh, until next week, um, I'll talk with you guys then. But I would love more questions so I can answer them next week. So just leave that in the comments. Thank you.